Many of the songs that we sing are not just well-crafted, poetically, and beautiful music. They actually are prayers, and they carry a cry of our hearts directly before the Lord, and such we have heard this morning. Let's continue and carry that cry into Second Chronicles chapter 20. There was no way out. We were going to die, and there was nothing that we could do about it. In the winter of 1999, Christy and I were driving through Indianapolis at night on the way to her parents' house. We had gotten into a construction zone in which there were the barriers, the concrete barriers, set on the white line right at the edge of the road. There had been no shoulder to the road for about seven miles. They'd even blocked off all the exits. There was nowhere to go. And a tractor trailer had been creeping up on us for quite some time and getting a, a little bit close. Finally, he decided to pass us. Only when he was right beside us, he either out of forgetfulness or inattentiveness lost track of where we were, flicked on his turn signal for just a second and started coming over on top of us. There was nothing I could do. 80,000 pounds of freight on one side, moving inexorably into our lane, and a concrete barrier on the other. I braced for the impact that would crush us and our little Honda Civic into a twisted wreck of metal that was not survivable. There was no way out. Life in a fallen world is not merely difficult at times, it's actually impossible. If you consider some of the fears that you have had and reflected on, they may be unique to your family or they may be more uh, broader, uh, involving all of Christian culture. But the fears that have pressed upon you in just the last month, or we could say the last week, or maybe in some cases, the last day. It's just a normal business pressure to have enough cash flow to make payroll. But what can you do when an employee gets angry at your Christian testimony, invents lies against you, and is suing you for a Title IX violation. Where even the court costs, if you win, could bankrupt your company. What are you supposed to do? Or what can you do when you went to get an antibiotic for your nagging cough, only to have the doctor tell you it's not bronchitis? And there's nothing we can do. And we can range much wider than this. Think imaginatively. What what has pressed in upon your life? What can you do when it seems like many of our government officials are sitting around saying, what worse law can we make up than the last one we made up? What can we do to assault the righteous, to destroy integrity among our constituents, to undermine the the moral fabric that has underpinned every civilization in the history of the world. What can we do to overthrow that? What can we do to elevate criminality and tax what is good? (laughs) What are you supposed to do? We're hemmed in on every side, and the fears increase, and the pressures increase, soul-consuming, 
enervating fear that just wears us out and devours our attention and governs our hearts. In our text today, Jehoshaphat and the entire nation of Judah find themselves in just such a situation. The first three verses provide crucial background information, and they they lead into the story. They're not, in some sense, on your outline. But let's look at them again and attend to how God sets up this story so that we understand how dire their situation is. After this, after what? In narratives, do you ask yourself that question? After what? Well, after chapter 19. What happened in chapter 19? Jehoshaphat is doing good. He's going throughout all of Judah and suppressing idol worship, destroying the Asherim, which are trees cut in the form of female deities, and the people are worshiping these. He's wiping them out. He's going around and appointing righteous judges, and then he's commissioning and commanding those judges, you don't do anything contrary to the law of God. Don't take bribes. Don't abuse justice either in the favor of the poor or against the poor, you do what is right. And the scriptures tell us that God is bringing peace and the the peace is extending throughout the land and there's some rest from their enemies. After this, after he did what was right, after he had already sought the face of the Lord, after all of this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and with them some of the Muonites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. So what? You almost read those like societies in conflict. And I mean like college societies. Okay, they had a soccer game and they just fought each other. These are perennial enemies of Israel and Judah. And I know, you know, the history and of the development of these people groups. Edom, of course, is derived from Esau. And those are the Muonites. That's a subset of the Edomites. So they've been enemies of Jacob all the way back into the mid-chapters of Genesis. But you can go even farther back than that to see the development of the Moabites and Ammonites from Lot's daughters and the sin that they committed with him. And they have always been a people hostile to God, always wayward, always straying, So much so that when the people of Israel came up out of Egypt and made their way northward towards Canaan, these three other people groups blocked their entrance and said, you will not go up by the international road that passes through our territory. You will not use it. We will stop you. We will wage war against you. And God said, fine, leave them alone. Go around them. But they've been hostile literally for a thousand years to Israel at this point. They came up against him for battle. Three against one. And also paint in your mind's eye the fact that this is a divided Israel. So this is not three against Israel. This is three against two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. As impoverished and weakened as the nation is at that point. Continue. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Ever ask yourself why God gives us details like this? What's the point? What's the big deal? Okay. The normal trade routes, and sorry, I don't have a good map here for you, so we'll, we'll depict a map. Can you follow this with me? Okay. Salt Sea, big body of water. We sometimes call it the Dead Sea. 
It's the Salt Sea here. Nobody wants to go south of the Salt Sea. South of the Salt Sea is an absolute desert, complete barren wasteland, and it's not like you can get water from the Salt Sea. It'll kill you even faster. So it's a wasteland down here. So much so that later on, just a few chapters apart from this, actually in the the account of the kings, Jehoshaphat is going to go to attack his enemies, and he's going to go south of the Salt Sea and nearly wipe out his army because they have no water. And if Elisha had not been present and say, dig this entire area full of ditches, you won't hear rain or any kind of sound of wind, but there will be water. And God supernaturally protects his people and gives them water. They would have all died. That's how desert and barren this territory is. Nobody goes south of the Salt Sea. So the the trade routes and the roads run this direction on the side of the Salt Sea. They go across the north and then back into Jerusalem over here. So if you're a strategic commander, where do you fortify? You only have limited resources. You fortify your border, the Jordan, or maybe the border of your own territory, which is a little bit inside of that, the main trade route leading into Jerusalem. You don't even have to worry about the the southern regions, that's impassable. And all of a sudden, a report comes, Jehoshaphat, they're on our back doorstep. They're in En Gedi. That would be the same En Gedi where David hid from Saul. It's a, a little kind of an oasis and a fortress as well as an oasis. If your enemy took En Gedi, that means they bypassed all of your fortifications, all your defenses, have made a circuitous route around all of this that you have designed, and now they're on your back doorstep and you're defenseless. What's more, in Getty is 20 miles from Jerusalem. That's a day's march. And yet there are actually lots of wadis or, or ravines that run from Jerusalem down towards Engedi. So you don't even know which one they're going to use to approach an attack. If you position your army in one of them, they still don't have fortifications, but you position your army wrong, you're dead. This is pretty desperate. Uh, could I put this in terms maybe that we would understand a little bit better? It's difficult to create a situation strictly analogous to this. But let's imagine that instead of all the states of the United States being allies of each other, we're enemies. So South Carolina and North Carolina are not friends. And let's just say that North Carolina, Virginia, and Tennessee decide to gang up and destroy South Carolina, but specifically they're marching on Greenville. We, we know they're going to come down at some points. We've been fighting them for decades. But if they're going to come down from North Carolina and attack Greenville, how are they going to get here? US 25 or I-85, right? That's about it. There, there aren't a lot of routes out of this area of North Carolina in, into Greenville, South Carolina. So what are we going to do strategically? We're going to build all of our fortifications in the mountains. You know, as you drive up US 25, we're going to have barricades and forts on the sides and armies watching over that. And we're pretty secure. So we're all happy. And all of a sudden we hear, oh, Mayor Knox White, North Carolina, South Carolina, sorry, North Carolina, Virginia and Tennessee armies are in Pickens. 20 miles away. And we think, that's flat land. 
There are no natural barriers, and our armies are out of position. We're dead. This is especially perilous because in the ancient world, army, invading armies did not just fight. There was no Geneva Convention yet. They burned your cities to the ground, stole all your food, took all your gold and silver, and anything else that looked like it was worth taking, seized all your agricultural animals and drove them off, killed anything that couldn't be driven off, sowed the ground with salt to make it impossible to grow crops in the future, killed all your men and children, mistreated the women, and anybody they didn't kill is now a slave. That's the situation Judah finds itself in. And this is a crisis point for faith because you can almost hear the cry of the heart because the cry has gone out in your heart as well. But Lord, didn't you just see all the good we were doing? I was serving you. I was walking with you. I was doing your will. We understand punishment and chastening that God might bring upon us when we were doing what is wrong to bring us back into righteousness. But that's not what's happening here. Lord, we were walking with you, and you let this happen? Our enemies are on our doorstep, and we can't do anything about it. Second Chronicles chapter 20 gives us a soul-searching alternative to this kind of fear and hand-wringing, the anxiety that we naturally experience, and even the false accusations against God that sometimes go along with this. When our hearts get stirred up in turmoil, the reflex of our natural hearts is to point barbs at God rather than open our hands to him. Our text boldly encourages us because God is faithful even in the midst of great distress innumerable distresses of life, set your hope on the God who saves. And setting your hope is a very active thing. It's not idleness, as you're going to see in this chapter. So let's continue reading with verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. The problem was not that he was afraid. This was a natural fear-inducing situation. The scriptures do not mock Jehoshaphat. They don't minimize the legitimacy of his fear. They don't say, oh, come on, buck up, Jehoshaphat. There's never a reason to fear. There is real reason to fear. It is a reflex that God has built into us that responds to a fallen world for self-protection. But what comes next is unexpected. Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. Is that what you do when you're afraid? Is that the reflex of the human heart? He proclaims a fast throughout all Judah and they assemble to pray. So the passage is first developing for us that we need to set our hope on God in a specific fashion. What does setting our hope on God look like? Is that just some kind of abstract thing that we're doing? No, we do that by appealing to him in the midst of our distress. And specifically, we appeal to God on the basis of his ultimate authority. He's going to develop this for a few verses in here, all Judah gathering together, all Judah coming to pray to the Lord. Now verse 6. Jehoshaphat said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Look where he starts a prayer that relates to his own fear and is an appeal to God. He points to divine authority. 
Because, you know, prayer doesn't do us any good if the one to whom we're praying doesn't have the power and authority to do anything about it. If God is not watching over the nations, then appealing to him, offering up to him prayer on the basis of what the wicked are doing in our own country today does no good. So he starts, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. So none none of his own wishes yet. Jehoshaphat does not appeal yet on the basis of anything we need. He identifies God's own ultimate authority. And look at what he says specifically. Get God of our fathers. God, you have established a relationship with us. We couldn't do that on our own. Since you have established relationship with us, do something. God in heaven, you hold a position of universal rule. So do something. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. This is visceral, practical. Of course, we know God is the universal ruler. He's out there. He's over heaven. No, you reign over all the nations. Ukraine? Yeah, Ukraine. Burkina Faso? Mm Mm-hmm. Burkina Faso. Sri Lanka? Yes, he's there. North Korea? What about America? You reign over all the nations. The reason we can appeal to you is you are the universal ruler. No one can withstand you. Daniel's going to echo this, won't he? Specifically, Daniel records one of the prayers that Nebuchadnezzar makes after Nebuchadnezzar is laid low in the dust, is driven insane for seven periods of time where he's wet with the dew of heaven and his nails grow like eagle's claws, the scriptures say, he never cuts them, and hair is matted all over his body. Then God returns his reason to him. And Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of the most powerful nation in the world in that era, says, I do now extol the God of heaven. The most high rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomsoever he will. No one can question him or stay his hand, stop him or say to him, what are you doing? That's the same prayer right here. A confession of God's ultimate authority. Verses seven and eight continue with an appeal to God on the basis of, it, of his previous conduct. It's great when we can list good things about somebody else or we can actually point to things going on in their lives and say, on the basis of what you have already done, we have confidence in you for the future. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? Now, he doesn't list them here, but the scriptures do go through lists of all these nations in lots of other places. You know, you hit them and they're all these weird names like the, the Perizzites and the Kenites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Stalagmites and the Stalactites, right? We always added those in as a family when we were growing up. It's like everybody was there in that land and you were able to drive out seven nations stronger than we were. Lord, you've already done things that are so awesome and so powerful. Have you forgotten God's activity in the founding of our nation? We wring our hands in the situation that we're dealing with right now politically, but what about the founding of our nation? Did God have to allow believers to come over and find religious freedom 
and themselves slowly establish justice and kind of a new experiment in the history of the world in this place. No, God has done mighty works in the past. Trust him for the future. Appeal to him on the basis of his previous conduct. What does he list as well? You gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. Uh, Lord, I just want to remind you of your connections and relationships with us and your promises that you have made. You see how quickly fear can be dissipated when we start pointing at all the mighty works of God and his internal power and character? Verse 9. Appeal to God on the basis of his promised salvation. If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. This is reflecting what? This is Solomon's prayer. Solomon offers this prayer with thousands of sacrifices to the Lord, and the Lord responds to Solomon at night and says, I will do what you've requested for the land. In another passage in Chronicles, right? Dealing with exactly that situation. Some of you have memorized this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. Now, the promises to Judah. God does not promise that America is going to last till the end times. He does not promise that our nation will be intact and still a bastion of righteousness in the earth. He made these promises to Israel specifically and its opportunity to repent. But the Lord is consistent, at least in his character across time, so that while the promise nationally may not rest on us, it does rest on us as individuals. God hears And Jehoshaphat just offers up to the Lord, Lord, look, look at what you said right here. The reason I have hope is not because I can reposition my armies in time, but because you have spoken. Verses 10 to 13, appeal to God on the basis of his attentive justice. And both parts of those, that is important. And now behold, the men of Ammon, And Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you've given us to inherit. Look at the injustice that's going on, God. You've been watching all of this unfold, and when we came out of Egypt, you didn't let us attack them. You didn't let us pass through their land and invade them. You told us, no, 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 go, go around on the far east side, circle north of them, and come back into the land that direction. And look how they reward us. We gave people opportunity as believers knowing that we're not to force Christianity on somebody else, although justice ought to be done, but we don't force Christianity. And the wicked have literally used the, the avenue, the opportunity provided by the righteous to take power and then to oppose and attack the righteous. They, they said they were for tolerance and for freedom, and the reality is, no, they were only for evil. Lord, don't you see what they have done Look at the injustice in the earth. Be attentive. And on the basis of your own justice, respond. So verse 12, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? We are powerless. Confession of our position. 
against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. I love this expression, but our eyes are on you. You know, I, I think if I were in Jehoshaphat's position, I would list a lot of things. I've got a bucket list, Lord. Uh, first of all, a uh, little bit of that hail, you know, that you sent on Egypt. We, we could use some hail right now. Uh, that, that would be good. Um, how about that last plague? The angel of the Lord goes out and strikes their firstborn at night. That, that would really diminish the size of their army if you struck the firstborn at night. And just, I would list a bunch of things. Jehoshaphat literally says, I don't know what to pray for. So what do I pray for? I'm looking to you. That's it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You say, well, why is that so incredibly important? Well, many of you know, and I've testified even before in this church of experiencing depression, and some of you have done so either cyclically or as a long period thing or some other distress. I can only use what I have natural experience with. I'm grateful that the Lord allowed me to recover from that post-COVID, but it lasted eight months with the damage that COVID had done to my mind. What do you pray for? You pray for healing, but you're eight months in and there's no healing. And there's desperation and there's an impossible situation. And and literally in the midst of many of our troubles, the the only thing that is left to do is to say, my eyes are on you. Or if I look off to the side, terror is on every hand. As soon as I take my eyes off of you, I'm thrown into this maelstrom of my own thinking and confusion. As soon as my eyes are not on you, I despair even of life. My eyes are on you. I've got to look at you. Is that enough? Do you believe that that's enough? Because the Lord has not promised to us a physical deliverance in the present age like Judah experienced. But he has promised a physical deliverance. Sometimes we almost split that apart and we want to defend God and justify him by saying, well, it's not physical. He'll deliver us spiritually. No, he will deliver us physically too. It just may take until we get our glorified bodies, but he will deliver It's why the book of Revelation can cry out to us that there will be no pain and no sorrow in his presence. But we will glorify him forever. Yeah, we suffer confusion now. There won't be confusion in the future. Now we suffer a wearing out bodies and pains all over. And in the future, you will still have a body, a new body, and no pain. So again, not necessarily physical, easy deliverance right now, but deliverance absolutely is coming. And God is attentively just in doing so. A few years ago, we welcomed the start of summer in an unusual way. I heard the outside door of our house slam and and footsteps running up the hall. Uh, Dad, I think I need some help. Came an insistent and distressed voice, so I casually answered, Okay, well, I'm busy. I'll be with you in about an hour. Good, I'm th- thankful that you laughed. You didn't think I really said that. <laughs> of course not. I ran out. Why? You, all of you parents that, that have had anything more than just a few-day-old child know a distressed cry. 
And what do you do when there's a distressed cry? A distressed cry is saying, there's no alternative. And it's not even, dad, I have a five-point plan of action that I would like you to engage on my behalf. It's, dad, I need some help. And a father rushes in or a mother rushes in and you look at the situation and you plan the out. And it might involve a trip to the emergency room or a bunch of stitches, as it did in our case. We won't go into more detail for your sake. Do you think God is any less caring? It's very difficult for us to maintain in our thinking the reality that God is transcendent and he is out there and so far out there and ruling not just over the world and over our solar system, but over the entire universe and simultaneously have any conception of an intimate care. But it is there. And when Jesus Christ is teaching his disciples to pray, you think of all the things he could have said. Teach us to pray, Rabbi, Master. Okay, well, pray like this. Oh, sovereign one who reigns over all things and who is eternally magnificent and beyond us all. And, he, he, and by the way, that's all legitimate. Prayers like that are offered sometimes in Scripture. But Jesus says, you, you want to know how to pray? Our Father. Our Father who is in heaven. Why can we say the simplest thing like our eyes are on you? Because our children do that. Dad, help! He'll solve the problem. Just like a parent will do everything he can to solve the problem. The passage moves next to setting our hope on God by listening to him in the midst of distress. And don't worry, this this continues to accelerate as we go through. Narratives work that way in Scripture. Verses 14 through 17, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. So all the people are standing around quietly, almost as if we're looking at each other. You, you, you got anything for us? What's Anything? No? Okay. Somebody else? Nothing? The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jehaziel. Why? Because if our eyes are on him, we have to wait for him to speak. Now, in our case, this is very active. We look to his word because he has already spoken. Our waiting takes the situation of reading and reading and continuing to read and continuing to pray until God brings solace to our hearts. But the people literally are waiting on him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Maniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, probably that psalm singer who wrote a number of our psalms, in the midst of the assembly. And Jehaziel said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. Remember all those wadis we were talking about? God tells them exactly which one they're coming up through. Go, Go to that one. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position. And see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them. The Lord will be with you. 
Um, men have a hard time sitting still in a crisis, right? I mean, all the little marriage books, just so young people will know this, you know, if you're teens and you're dating, all the marriage books say, men want to solve things, women just want you to listen, right? And so here we're, we want to solve something. Enemy is in a new place. We got the, let's reposition the army, let's fix this. And sometimes the solution is to wait, particularly when God is involved and our situation really is impossible. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel and told him exactly what to do. And I, I can imagine myself rushing off to try to fix the problem instead of listening to God. Okay, offer to prayer. Now, let's... As if the prayer wasn't the solution. The prayer was the solution. Because if God has chosen to act... The battle's over. Listening requires valuing God's word. In verse 14, specifically, they're listening to a prophet, somebody who was known in their own day as, as one who really had the word of the Lord. And Jehoshaphat has already given testimony. Go back a couple of chapters and you find his interaction with Ahab. And while Jehoshaphat had this horrible defect of constantly compromising with evildoers, he really did love the Lord and, and seek the Lord's face. So that when Ahab got together all sorts of false prophets and said, should we go up against Ramoth Gilead? Well, we went and they're like, oh, go up, you're gonna win. Jehoshaphat responds to that, how? Okay, okay, but isn't there a prophet of the Lord here we can listen to? I know all these other guys, they're... I want a prophet of the Lord. So when Jehaziel actually speaks, Jehoshaphat knows who are the true prophets of the Lord and he is willing to stop and value God's word in listening. Listening also involves, in verse 15, setting aside your fear. Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, do not be afraid. How easy is it to listen in the midst of fear? How easy is it to focus when you're afraid? When one of my children was in elementary school, it started snowing during the school day. Several students saw it and, and yelled out, it's snowing! The teacher, now this is hearsay, I'm, I'm relying on the child's report, the teacher immediately closed the window, shut all the shades. Was that effective? Now, the objective, the goal in mind was, uh, you know, out of, out of sight, out of mind. Okay, that works when your kids are, you know, zero to, say, six months. <laughs> Third graders, not so much. Okay? You, you, you shut out the window, but it's still snowing out there, and we know it's still snowing out there, and I have no idea what you're saying. He said the, the morning was wasted. You, you should have opened the windows, gathered all the classes around them, oohed and awed at the snow. This is going to be great. Oh, I hope it, you know, and then got back to your schoolwork because we don't process very well when we're distracted, do we? Fear is one of those overriding distractions. You, you go to start praying, fear crushes it again. And you're like, oh, I gotta, I gotta dial my mind back. You start praying, and gone again. 
Jehaziel has to stand up, and, and the, the first part of the message is, don't fear. God has this. You have to silence and still your fear before the Lord, or you won't be able to listen to him. You'll still, your fear will pull you to try to solve the problem and go in your own directions. So there's an appeal, and it's something that we need to do in the midst of our own hearts, and that is look to the Lord, but silence our fears, still the heart, and exercise your faith in him. Listening involves attending to God's plan in verses 16 to 17. The point of listening to God is to, as it were, take notes on his plan. It's not to read your Bible for a few minutes in the morning, which is good. You do whatever you have time to do, and then zip off to the rest of your day Take mental notes, if not actually even physical notes, on God's plan for your life. Look at all the details. Tomorrow, go down against them. Don't start marching now. Don't wait for a week. Tomorrow, go down against them. The time. First stage of responsibility, go down. Don't sit here. Don't try to fortify go down. So we have the when, we have a portion of the what. Next, location of the enemy troops. They're at the ascent of Ziz. Go there. We have the where. Location of the battlefield. It's going to be at the end of the valley, east of Jeruel. That's where you need to get your lookouts and admire my handiwork. Next stage of responsibility, don't fight. Stand still and watch. Get out your opera glasses, guys. You're going to want to see this. Stand still and watch. See the salvation of the Lord. What did God expect his people to do then? Given this prophecy, what did he want them to do? And you're like, I don't understand the question. No, seriously, all this detail in the prophecy. So what did God really want his people to do? And yet that's exactly how we treat his word sometimes. God gives us all these instructions. Now, uh, I've got to solve the problem this way. If God gave the instructions, he wanted us to listen to them and actually act on them. We prize thinking for ourselves so highly in our culture, we can fall prey to an absurd spiritual response that actually disregards the clear command of God and attentiveness to his word in favor of doing our own thing after we've heard him tell us what we're supposed to be doing. That doesn't make any sense. It's never backward, foolish, and ignorant to believe what God actually said. When our children also were much younger, we often told them to look at our eyes when giving instructions. One of them, Daniel, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Avoided making eye contact a lot. Daniel, look at my eyes. Daniel, look at my eyes. Hey, Daniel, where are your eyes? Daniel, where are daddy's eyes? Okay, now look at them. And that's, by the way, exactly what we do. Some of you young parents, get your children to look first. Because if they're looking, listening goes along with looking real well. You may have to go through a process. Okay, where's your nose? Where's my nose? Where's your mouth? Where's my mouth? Where are your eyes? Where are my eyes? Good. Hold them right there. (laughs) Okay. But essentially, that's what God does to his people. Look at me. Look at me. Pay attention. 
listen. Your heart is never going to reach a stage of not fearing if you keep darting off in new directions, looking for alternatives. Look at me and listen. Salvation is not found outside of me, but in me. The passage finally moves to this great epical moment that where we are to set our hope on God by responding to him in the midst of distress. And just very quickly, look at the worship of God in the midst of distress. Look at the praise in these verses. And I'm going to ping pong around here a little bit. Verse 18. Then Jehoshaphat fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Verse 19. And the Levites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Verse 21. He appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 22. When they began to sing in praise, verse 26, they assembled in the valley of praise, Barakah. For they blessed the Lord. Therefore, they named it the Valley of Barak. Praise, praise, praise. Response to God in the midst of our trouble, it involves praise. We deal with our darkness and our impossible situations best by praise. And hope is established in the midst of praise. Next, obey God implicitly in your distress. Verse 20 and then 24 and 25, Judah went exactly where God commanded. That followed the attendance on God's word that we just talked about, listening carefully to him. They did what they were commanded to do. So after paying attention to what God has said, do it. And then affirm your faith in the midst of your distress. Now, we miss something by not being readers of Hebrew. Amen, Dr. Yeagley? Okay. There's a great play on words in this phrase, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Let me bore you for just a minute. Okay, we'll go back to excitement in a minute. Okay, there are two different tenses for this same word in Hebrew. One is nephil and one is hephil. And my Hebrew is gone, so I just had to look up what he meant. Okay, you can ask Dr. Yeagley. But it's translated two different ways in our passage. Believe in the Lord... The other cognate, the the same word over here in a different tense is, you will be established. Like, those don't feel like they're the same thing. It's actually on a basis of a word from which we get amen. Our word, amen. Believe, be established. One is your responsibility. You must trust God. The other is God's responsibility. He is going to do the establishing outside of you on the basis of your simply trusting him. The only parallel I could come up with in English, the same kind of wordplay would be something like this. Be sure in your God and he will make you sure. That approximates the Hebrew. So what does he do? Jehoshaphat takes counsel very quickly. He sets his singers at the forefront. Got about 100 people in the choir, on the stage, I should say. So we'll get the violinists are, you know, marching at the forefront and all the singers are out there in front of the SEAL teams are way back. You've got the violinists in the front. And some of you violinists are like, I'm not sure I want to do this. It's like, you know, they're marching out in praise to the Lord. And this is a, one of the most awesome factors, I think, a wow factor in this entire chapter. Uh, Where's the battle? And I don't mean location physically on the planet. I mean in the passage, where's the battle? 
scan. Go ahead, actually do it. I look at the text. Where's the battle? Do you find it? Verses 22 and 23. This would very much distress me when I was younger. I love military history. And we had some, some historians, some teachers that I had all the way through that would be like, oh, let's talk about reconstruction. And the Civil War happened right before it. Okay, moving on. And like, no, I want to study the battles and the tactics and all the things that went on in gory detail. Where's the battle? Two little verses, and it's so anticlimactic. Verse 22, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. When they made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped destroy one another. (gasps) And you're like, come on, I want to see the swords coming out. And all the, he's like, no, they're all dead. This sounds a lot, by the way, like another incident, doesn't it? Oh, the Lord sent out an angel at night and he killed 185,000 Assyrians and when they woke up in the morning, they were all dead corpses. Moving on. Do you realize God could have recounted his word and his truth in lots of different forms? He could have expanded on this battle in great detail. So what's the theological point of reducing the battle, which we would think is the climactic moment, to two verses that are kind of thrown in there almost as an aside? The battle was already over. The impossible situation that you face is impossible until you trust God. And the point at which you trust God, the battle is already over. That doesn't mean it gets easy right away. You still have to march. You may still have to stand. You may even, in some circumstances, still have to fight if that's what God commands you to do. But the battle is over. Trust the Lord. He is faithful. And the rest of the chapter deals with praise and the fact that at the end of this entire saga, God gives rest to his people in the land because they believed in him. In the split second that the semi veered into our lane, I braced for the impact that would crush us between 80,000 pounds of freight and a cement wall. There was no way out. Until there was. When we were six inches away from impact on my driver's side door, the barriers disappeared. Uh, Not exactly disappeared. Actually, they jogged inward or stay off the road. And there was, for the first time in seven miles, a little bit of a shoulder. And I wrenched the car off the road, braked hard. The semi roared into the lane right where I had been seconds before. I jerked back onto the road, and the barrier started again and continued for about the next seven miles. There was one place in 14 miles of impossibility where God said, hmm you know what? And you always wonder in circumstances like that. We've kind of joked as a family ever since then, did God dispatch an angel? Oh, you need to get down there. And from mile marker, dot to dot, you need 100 yards. That's it. All we need is 100 yards and you better make sure it's in the right place. Are you listening? (laughs) 
is that what the Lord did? Or did some distracted guy who was laying out the things just kind of, he, he slept. So his machine went off to the side and he laid those in a little, we have no idea to this day. But we are alive, both of us, my wife and me, and therefore three children who did not yet exist because of deliverance. Will you trust God to deliver you from the impossible? As we turn our attention now to um, our, our final song, and Tim will come lead us in a stanza in just a minute, but we're going to play one verse, as we always do here. But let me remind you, you are always responding to the word of God. Always. Every service that you sit in, you're either responding by saying, eh, this is not really that important, or you're responding by, once again, just yielding up your heart and saying, you know, Lord, I have faced trouble that I need to yield to you today. Each of us needs to be praying and saying, God, you are faithful. Deliver me. However you choose, whatever it looks like, whatever pain I am go through, deliver me as I look forward to that final great deliverance. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll sing in just a minute. Father, grateful for the testimony of your word. Thankful, we're thankful that it is recorded in such vivid, bold, and dramatic terms for us so that we can hear and follow you. May we now deliver our hearts over to you once again as people of faith who want to walk by faith so that the difference that we make in the world is not so much wrought by us, but by your power. It's in Christ's name we pray.